This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. For the next few weeks, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. The next three episodes of the series focus on the theme of changing minds, what it means to engage in dialogue with people with whom we disagree, sometimes deeply disagree, and the importance of civil discourse, particularly in this deeply polarized national moment. In the first two episodes, I speak with Daryl Davis about racism and how he envisions the possibility of changing the minds of those who believe and participate in white supremacist and white separatist movements. Daryl Davis is a black singer and author who has facilitated over 200 members of the KKK to leave the organization simply by befriending them and letting them know who he is. He's big on simply reaching out rather than censorship. And he has created a de-radicalization movement at change.minds.com to help people connect in a simple way online. Across the two episodes with Daryl, I talked to Daryl about his work and his views on navigating this particularly fraught moment. In thinking about the ethics of technology, and in particular its relationship to our moment of political, cultural, and ideological polarization, the ethics of technology extend far beyond how we use tech. Those ethics start far before we ever sit down at our computer to respond to a Facebook post or broadcast our views on Twitter from our phone. They start with how we imagine and practice civil discourse. In my conversation with Daryl, we explore what those ethics can look like and how they can come to transform our approach to engaging in dialogue with distant others. By the term distant others, I mean geographical distance But I also mean political distance, ideological distance, or cultural distance. Daryl's work and his activism shows an important alternative to the discord that dominates our current conversation, and he points us to the possibility of ethical engagement across that distance and those differences. In the third of the three episodes, I speak to Bill Ottman, the CEO of Minds.com a social media platform that provides an alternative to Facebook and that seeks to prioritize privacy, transparency, and open exchange. Between these conversations and across these three episodes, we explore the relationship between tech and civil discourse and the ways that we all can be part of creating a healthier and more vibrant national conversation, not in spite of our differences and distances, but because of them. Hi, Daryl. Hi there. So, Daryl, in in preparing for this interview, I listened to a few of your previous interviews, and in those interviews, you explained the moment when you were first told about racism and how it led you to ask the question, and I'm quoting you here, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? I wonder if you could explain to our audience a little bit of your journey to answering this question and where it has taken you. Well, we have to go back to when I was a child. I'm age 62 now. And my parents were in the U.S. Foreign Service. And we started traveling abroad to various countries at my age of three in 1961. My first exposure to school was overseas. So at age three, I was like, you know, in preschool, kindergarten, things like that. 
And you're in a country for two years, and then you return home back here to, to, to the U.S. You're here for a few months, possibly a year, and then you get reassigned to another country abroad. So every two years, I would come home. Now, my classes overseas in the 1960s were multicultural, and that term did not even exist. Uh, in my class, I had Nigerian kids, Italian, French, German, Russian, Japanese, Australian, anybody who had an embassy in those countries, all of their children went to the same school. That was my first exposure to school. So to me, that was the norm. Now, when I would come back home here to my own country, I would either be in all black schools or black and white schools, meaning the still segregated or the newly integrated schools. And because, you, know, you know, schools were desegregated by the Supreme Court four years before I was born in 1954. But it's not like a light switch. You know, they just passed, you know, passed the law and all of a sudden all schools are integrated. It took years for schools to become integrated, even, even over a decade in some cases. So even in the early 1960s, schools were still not fully integrated. So one of the times when I came home, it was uh, 1968. I was 10 years old in the fourth grade. And of course, there was not the diversity in this country that I had overseas. So at this point in time, I was one of two black children in the entire school, this elementary school. Myself in fourth grade, there was a little black girl in the second grade. So I rarely saw her except for like at recess time or lunchtime. Consequently, all of my friends were white. Many of my guy friends, fourth and fifth graders, were members of the Cub Scouts. And they invited me to join, so I joined. And one day we had a, uh, a parade in which I was the only black scout in this parade amongst the other scout troops and other groups. And people were lined on the sidewalks on both sides of the street, cheering us and waving and having a good time until we got to a certain point in this parade route when suddenly I was getting hit by objects, uh, bottles, soda pop cans, small rocks, and just general debris from the street by just a small group of spectators off to my right. And what I recall today is there were a couple of kids, perhaps a year or two older than me, and a couple of adults who were throwing things. And me having had no precedent for this type of behavior, my first thought was, oh, those people over there to my right, you know, they don't like the scouts. That's how naive I was. And it wasn't until all my scout leaders came running and huddled over me with their bodies to, to protect me from these projectiles that I realized I was the only scout getting hit. None of the other scouts were getting the special protection. And so I kept saying, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything to them. Why, why are they doing this? And all they would do is kind of shush me and rush me along, telling me everything would be okay. Just keep moving, keep moving. And they never answered my question as to why this was happening. And I was totally baffled. I had no idea. You know, uh, I, I kept thinking, you know, what had I done? Uh, why are they throwing things at me? The idea that it was because of the color of my skin never occurred to me. All right. So at the end of the parade, you know, I went home. My parents were not there at, at the parade. They were at home. And so they saw me and they began, you know, cleaning me up and putting Band-Aids on me and asking me, how did I fall down and get all scraped up? That's what they thought happened. And I told them I didn't fall down. I told them exactly what had happened. And for the first time in my life, my parents sat me down and explained to me what racism was. 
Now, believe it or not, at the age of 10, I had never heard the word racism. I had no clue what they were talking about. You know, not that I'm stupid, but I just, that word was not in my, in my sphere. You know, I, I grew up with kids from all over the world. People who didn't speak the same language as me, didn't look like me, didn't go to the same church or practice what I practiced or whatever, but we all got along. You know, there was no racism in my world. And so when they were telling me this, I literally did not believe them, especially because the people who were throwing things at me did not look any different to me than my friends overseas, whether they were my little German friends or my French or British friends, you know, or for that matter, my fellow Americans at the embassy, or for that matter, right here in the U.S., uh, my classmates and their parents. So I, I couldn't understand why my parents were saying that some people you know, don't like you because of the color of your skin. And the people who were doing it looked just like my friends. So it made no sense to me, and my 10-year-old brain could not process it. Well, uh, between a month and a half to two months later, that same year, 1968, on April the 4th, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And every major city in this country burned to the ground. And I remember it vividly, vividly. And it was then that I understood that this thing, this, this new phenomenon that I'd learned about a couple months prior called racism, uh, I realized my parents had told me the truth. It did exist, but I didn't know why it existed. Why do people hate one another and they don't even know them? So I formed a question at that age, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And for the next 52 years, I've been looking for the answer to that question. That's how the journey started. Now, shortly after that summer of 68, we went back overseas on, on an assignment. And once again, I was around what I call normalcy. You know, people from all over the world got along fine. And, you know, <clears throat> in, in later years, when I go around the country and giving lectures, and then I do a Q&A, some people uh, ask me, you know, how come your parents, you know, didn't prepare you for this? Why didn't they tell you about racism? You know, you know, do you think that was right that they shielded you from it, knowing that, you know, that you were going to have to be exposed to it at some point in this country? And, you know, and I think about that. And at, at some point I wonder, you know, well, why didn't they tell me about that? Why did I have to learn about it by getting hit upside the head, you know, with a bottle or something? Um, but I tell you what, in retrospect, I am glad that they did not tell me about it. And, you know, you would think counterintuitively, you know, I should have known because I could be prepared for it and understand what's going on. But look at the other side of it. Let's say my parents at my young age, you know, say five, six, seven, eight, nine, whatever, had told me uh, there are some white people out there who are, who are not going to like you because of the color of your skin. And they may call you names or they may try to physically hurt you. And they're going to try to prepare me for this stuff. What would that have done to my psyche at that age? Would I have been suspicious of every white person that I see? I think, you know, is this person going to hurt me? Um, somebody might, you know, might be trying to be my friend, trying to befriend me. And I'm going to be suspicious of them just because of their skin color, because of what my parents told me about white people. 
Um, so I'm glad they didn't tell me that. Yeah, I found out about it the hard way, but I had no prejudices. I, you know, I've gotten along with plenty of white people that I never suspected as being what they called racist. So I'm glad that it happened this way, as opposed to my uh, having, you know, some uh, trepidation about be- becoming friends with somebody because my parents had told me that some people would want to hurt me. I wouldn't know if that guy's going to hurt me or that guy's going to hurt me or that guy's going to be my friend. You know, they all have white skin, so therefore they all are suspect. It's a good thing that they probably didn't tell me. At age 15, enrolled in a high school course titled Problems of the 20th Century, Daryl encountered Matt Cole, an American Marine, a neo-Nazi politician, and a white supremacist writer. Cole would become the longest-serving leader of the American Nazi Party from 1967 to his death in 2014. Cole, a staunch Hitlerist, espoused the belief that Adolf Hitler was the gift of an inscrutable divine providence who had been sent to rescue the white race from decadence and gradual extinction, which had been caused, he claimed, by a declining birth rate and miscegenation. Here is Daryl talking about the impact that the encounter with Cole had on him. So again, every two years, you know, we go back overseas. It seems like every time I, I would come home, I would experience some type of racist behavior perpetrated upon me by somebody. Well, 10th grade, I'm, in, uh, I'm 15 years old, and we had a class in high school called the POTC, which stood for Problems of the 20th Century. It was a great class. It was a class for seniors, but I was taking it as a sophomore in high school. And our teacher, this is 1974, our teacher would invite controversial people to the classroom to address the seniors. And then, you know, we could ask questions of whoever the guest speaker was. Well, on this particular day, the, the, the guest speaker was the head of the American Nazi Party. Now, he's there in my high school classroom. You could never get away with that today. But we're talking 1974. Things were a lot different back then. The, let me just give you a little bit of background on that. The American Nazi Party was founded by a fellow named George Lincoln Rockwell. He was a vehement uh, anti-Semite and racist. He was always getting into it with uh, Martin Luther King. And a very dangerous guy. Well, his right-hand guy was a fellow named Matt Cole, K-O-E-H-L. And George Lincoln Rockwell was murdered by one of his own American Nazis. They got into an argument uh, right over on the sidewalk in Arlington, Virginia, where the headquarters is, which is about 30 minutes from where I'm sitting right now. And a guy named John Palter put out a gun and shot him dead on the sidewalk. So Matt Cole, who was Lincoln Rockwell's right-hand guy, took over the organization. So on this day in 1974, Matt Cole and his right-hand guy, Martin Kerr, K-E-R-R, came to my school. And they're standing up in the front of my classroom espousing the views of uh, white supremacy. And Matt Cole pointed at me and pointed at another black guy in the class and said, we're going to ship you back to Africa. And then he made a sweeping motion with his, with his forefinger across the room and said, and all you Jews out there are going back to Israel. Now, I'm 15 years old, and I'm sitting there looking at this guy like, what on earth is this man talking about? And I didn't say, I did not challenge him. I didn't say anything. I was just sitting there looking at him because, you know, my generation, we were raised to, 
to respect your elders as figures of authority. At the time, Matt Cole was probably in his 40s, so he was certainly my elder. I did not respect what he was saying, but I was respecting his right to say whatever he wanted to say. So as a child, I'm just looking at him. And somebody in my class piped up and said, what happens if they don't go? And Matt Cole said, oh, they have no choice. If they do not leave voluntarily, they will be exterminated in the upcoming race war. That was the first time I ever heard the term race war. And I was thinking to myself, what is this man talking about? Race war? You know, uh, I, I, I don't get this. And then he went on to say that the color of your skin will be your uniform. Your uniform will be the color of your skin. And I, I'm thinking, man, you know, this guy is just nuts. But again, I didn't challenge him. I just sat there quietly. I wasn't afraid of him, but I was, you know, just respecting him as, as my elder. And uh, later that day, I was standing beside my locker in the hallway, and Martin Kerr and Matt Cole were leaving the school. They'd been around all day giving other talks at other PLTC classes in the school. So now, now they're leaving, and they had to walk by me. And when they got right by me, they paused. And they didn't say anything to me. They just stared at me and then gave me a nasty sneer and then went on out the door, and they were gone. From that day forward, I began buying every single book I could find on black supremacy, white supremacy, anti-Semitism, the Ku Klux Klan, the neo-Nazis here, the Nazis in Germany. I wanted to learn where does that ideology come from? Where does it come from? Where is it going? How can it be addressed? And I would ask people, you know, why are people like this? How can you hate somebody when you don't even know them? And I never got a satisfactory answer. I would get answers like, well, Daryl, you know, that's just the way some people are. That's just how it is. Yeah, but why? Well, that's just the way it is. You know, that, that does not answer my question. And none of my books answered my question. They all talked about it, but they did not give me a definitive answer. How do we respond in the face of vile hatred, attacks on our identities, prejudicial hate, and discrimination? For many of us, the tendency is to respond with our emotions. The kind of hatred Matt Cole represents and sought to demonstrate in the multiple protests the neo-Nazi movements would organize seemed to demand the most vehement of responses from those of us who seek to disavow and combat such hatred, especially when it is put on display. Indeed, we may feel justified, even morally right, in so doing, but Daryl proposes a unique alternative, one that just may be more effective. All right, so skip ahead. I graduate high school, go to college, get my degree in, in, uh, in music, and I graduate, you know, four years later. So I'm, now I'm playing in bands and stuff. So music had become my profession, but studying race relations had become my obsession. And every opportunity I got, I was trying to learn more and more about this, this phenomenon of hating people. Well, I found out, you know, I, I live in Maryland, about 15 minutes from Washington, D.C., and anytime you want to have a protest in D.C., you go to Lafayette Park. Some people go to the Capitol, as you saw a couple of weeks ago. But uh, Lafayette Park is right across the street from the White House. And there are people there 24-7 with different issues, always. So I found out about an unpublicized rally that was going to take, or a demonstration that was going to take place uh, in Lafayette Park facing the White House 
um, at 12 noon on a particular day by the American Nazi Party. And this was eight years later after um, Matt Cole had appeared in my school. I found out about this unpublicized rally. Nobody knows about it except for the people who he told. Uh, the police don't even know about it. Because if people, if, if the general public knew about it, everybody would show up with baseball bats and bricks and chains and, you know, there'd be a full-scale riot. So I found out about it. And back then, you could drive your car up and down the uh, 1600 block of Pennsylvania Avenue, which is where the White House is located. Today, you can't do that. Too many people have tried to take their vehicles and ram the gates of the White House. So they put up these concrete pylons. But back then, you could. So I went down there and I parked my car catty corner to the White House. And I waited. And right on time, this, this van came. And I would say maybe 13, 14, 15 of these American Nazis got out of this van. And there was, there was nothing that indicated that they were Nazis. There were no swastikas or SS insignias or anything like that. Who did I see? I saw Matt Cole and Martin Kerr, the same two guys who came to my high school back in 1974. And uh, this was 1982 when, when this was happening. So I, I watched Matt Cole get his Nazis all lined up in a row and they're, and they're standing there facing the White House. Now, people are walking up and down the sidewalk past them, not even realizing who they are, because it's just something typical that goes on in Lafayette Park. I knew who they were. So I got out of my car, <clears throat> and I walked over. And I walked right up to Matt Cole. And I, now, I felt the need to confront him, because back then in 1974, when I was age 15, I did not confront him because of that thing, you know, uh, you, you view your elders as, as figures of authority. I was a child. He was an adult. Okay, so now in 1982, um, he's still my elder, but the dynamics had changed. It was no longer child to adult. It was now adult to adult, younger adult to older adult. So we, we were in the same adult category, right? I thought I could confront him then, and so I was going to. So I walked right up to him. And I said, Matt Cole. And he jumped back like, yeah, who is this black person calling my name? And um, he said, do I know you? And I said, well, you spoke at my high school. And he said, what high school would that be? And I said, Thomas Wooten High School. He goes, oh, yes, yes, yes. I remember you. That was a long time ago. I said, yes, it was eight years ago. And he says, what can I do for you? And I said, do you recall what you told me? And he nodded his head. And he goes, how can I help you? I said, well, you can tell me just who the hell gives you the authority to make permanent travel arrangements for me. And he says, what's your name again? I said, Daryl Davis. He put his hand out. He shook my hand and he held my hand in his hand. And this is a, 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 a tactic that I learned from him that I would later apply with other white supremacists. Anyway, he held my hand and he didn't let it go. And he took his other hand and pointed his finger in my face and said, Mr. Davis, you have to understand one thing. It is in the interest of your race, the black race, to be a strong race. And you cannot be a strong race unless you are a pure race. And you cannot be a pure race if you are miscegenating with other races. It is in the interest of my race, the Aryan race, which is what he calls the white race, to also be a strong race. And therefore, we must be a pure race but my race is committing a genocide by miscegenating with mud races such as yours. 
we are becoming a mongrel race. So now he's calling anybody who's a non-Aryan or non-white uh, a mud race. And any kind of miscegenation creates a mongrel race. So he's all about preserving, you know, his, his whiteness or whatever. And so, you know, he went on and spouted some other views. And I thanked him. And I wasn't there to, to fight with him or beat him up or whatever. I, I want to learn from him as to how he could hate me when he doesn't even know me. And, and how is he going to send me somewhere, you know, back to Africa or whatever, uh, when he doesn't have that authority? So I'm, I'm learning from him. And, you know, when he got done, I thanked him, shook his hand again, and I left. In our current moment, in the wake of 2020, a year filled with protests, a violent insurrection at our Capitol, and demonstrations both for and against the former Trump administration, we have become very aware of not only how protests and demonstrations create and fortify movements, but also their telegenic power, the way that they can be used on television or other visual media, or how they can be described to appeal to a group of viewers and further their interests in a cause. We've also seen how these clips can be misappropriated, used in ways that recontextualize the visual content in disingenuous ways. Clips of BLM protests used by right-wing media groups to fabricate alarmist and totally false claims about the danger of Antifa, for example. Here's Daryl talking about the problem of optics in counter-protesting white supremacist movements and what he sees as an alternative strategy. Later that summer, they had a publicized rally. And so everybody showed up to fight the Nazis in D.C., and it, uh, all kinds of police were there making a circle around them to protect them. Uh, because, you know, they have the right to freedom of speech and they have the right to freedom of assembly. And so uh, there were probably maybe less than 50, I'd say between maybe 30 and 40, 40 some Nazis who came from all over the country. Matt Cole had publicized this event as, see, the, 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 at the time, the American Nazi headquarters was over in Arlington, Virginia, right across the Potomac River from Washington, D.C. So he, he had uh, advertised this uh, rally as the National Recruitment Rally for the American Nazi Party. He's going to recruit Nazis into the, into the uh, organization. And so D.C. was going to be the spot where he's going to hold his National Recruitment Rally. Now, here's the thing. Why would you go to Washington, Washington D.C., to recruit people into the American Nazi Party. Anybody who knows Washington, D.C. knows that D.C. is two-thirds Black. There are no Black people in D.C. who want to join the American Nazi Party. There are no Jewish people in Washington, D.C. or anywhere else who want to join the American Nazi Party. So why D.C.? Because he knew what was going to happen. Sure enough, you got about 35, 40-some Nazis there you had over 10,000 protesters and they came armed with, you know, projectiles and bats and chains and all that kind of stuff. Well, of course, the police are protecting the Nazis because they have those rights to freedom of assembly, freedom of speech. <clears throat> well, the protesters were having none of it. They charged the police. The police fought back, tear gassed everybody, beat people with sticks. Uh, my secretary and I were down there watching all this. We were just standing there as observers when, when all this rioting broke out. And we got hit with the nightsticks. I said, come on, let's go home. So, you know, we leave. On the news that night, back then there was only um, ABC, NBC, and CBS. There was no cable television. We're talking, you know, 1980s. 
And uh, we're watching the news on our local uh, NBC affiliate, and they're showing the riot that ensued that day and people turning over police cars and bashing out windows and all this kind of stuff. And there is Matt Cole sitting in the studio and and uh, commenting on, on the video of this mayhem. And he says, you see, you see, it's the blacks and the Jews who are, who are turning over police cars. You don't see any Nazis doing that, you know? And it was then that I understood why he had the rally in DC. He, he was a smart guy, just twisted. He wanted to get the official footage, official meaning CBS, ABC, NBC, get the official footage of, of this uh, rioting and show black people and Jewish people turning over police cars and fighting with the police and showing the Nazis not, not doing any damage, right? And then he would take that, that footage, go out to the Pacific Northwest, Idaho, Montana, you know, Oregon, Washington State, et cetera, and show this. And say, you see, you see what's happening in our in, in our nation's capital. The blacks and the Jews are taking over. Zog is running our country. Zog is a famous uh, white supremacist acronym. Z O G. It stands for Zionist Occupied Government. And so, you know, Zog is running our country. Come join us. You know, we're going to take our country back. On and on and on. And it works. People people see this footage and they fear their country is being overrun, just like we saw it, you know, two weeks ago here in, in, uh, at the Capitol, and they go and join the American Nazi Party. So I realized, you know, that's, that's a propaganda tool. And uh, I kept that in mind. In 1983, Darrow was performing in a country band at a bar in Frederick, Maryland. He was the only black man in the band, and it was an all-white venue. In the bar, he was approached by a man who liked his music and wanted to buy him a drink. Not a particularly unusual situation except that the man was a member of the KKK. And then I joined a, uh, a country music band. Country music had made a resurgence. And so if you wanted to work full-time in music, you played what was popular. I joined a country band. The band was established. They'd been playing around the area for a while. It was an all-white band. And most of the places where they played was, you know, were all-white places. We played one in particular up in a town called Frederick, Maryland about an hour and 20 minutes outside of D.C. And this was an all-white bar called the Silver Dollar Lounge. Now, when I say all-white, I do not mean that Black people could not go in. What I mean is that Black people did not go in, and that is by their own choice. And it was a good choice because they were not welcome there. And when you go somewhere where you're not welcome and alcohol is being served in the establishment, it does not make for a good combination. So... Here I was in this Silver Dollar Lounge, only black person in the band, only black person in the whole lounge. And we had played a set and now we're taking a break and I'm walking to go sit down at the band table with the guys. And I felt somebody come up from behind me and put their arm around my shoulder. Now, I don't know anybody in here other than the band. I see the whole band in front of me. So who's this person touching me? I turn around and I see this guy, white guy, 15, 18 years older than me. He's smiling and he says, you know, how much he enjoys the music and he's seen the band before, but he's never seen me before. And I explained to him, yes, he probably did see the band because they've played here before, but this is my first time here. And he shakes my hand and tells me that uh, he really enjoyed my piano playing. And this was the first time that he'd ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. 
Well, I was, I was not offended, but I was rather surprised that this guy who was older than me did not know the black origin of Jerry Lee Lewis's style of piano playing. So I proceeded to tell him that Jerry Lee got it from the same place I did, from black blues and boogie-woogie pianists. You know, that's where that rock and roll, rockabilly style came from. Well, the guy was incredulous. He did not believe me. But, you know, he said, no, you know, you're the only black person I've ever seen play like that. You know, Jerry Lee invented that, on and on. I said, listen, man, I said, I know Jerry Lee. You know, I, I, I know him personally. He's even told me himself, you know, about how he would listen to these black uh, boogie-woogie piano players. The guy didn't believe that I knew him either. But he was so fascinated with me that he wanted me to come back to his table so he could buy me a drink. So I go back to his table, sit down. I had a cranberry juice. He pays the waitress. He takes his glass and he clinks my glass and he cheers me. And then he says, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. And now I am totally mystified. Uh, I'm not stupid again, but I'm naive. And because in, in my life, I have sat down literally with thousands of white people at that point and had a meal, a beverage, a conversation. And this guy has never done that. And he's older than me. And so I innocently, I asked him, I said, why? And he didn't answer me at first. I asked him again. He still didn't answer me. And his buddy, you know, who was sitting next to him, elbowed him in the side and said, tell him, tell him, tell him. I said, tell me. Now, now like, you know, so what's the secret, you know, that you all are keeping from me? Well, the guy looks at me and he says, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And I just burst out laughing because I thought the guy was making a joke. Well, I knew he was making a joke because like I told you before, I bought all these books on the Ku Klux Klan and I've read them all. And I know the Klan inside out. And I know they don't just come up and hug some black guy and praise their talent and want to hang out with them and buy them a drink. It doesn't work that way. So I'm laughing at him. You know, he's joking with me. And he goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, and hands me his Klan membership card. I look at this thing. I recognize the Klan insignia, which is a red circle with a white cross and a, and a blood drop, a red blood drop in the center of the cross. And I stop laughing because this thing is for real. So I gave it back to him. And now we're sitting there talking about, you know, different things, the Klan and some other things. But the, the man was very friendly and, and very complimentary. And, you know, I was baffled, like, well, you know, why am I sitting here talking to a Klansman? But he was very friendly, you know? And so he gave me his phone number and he wanted me to call him whenever I was to return with the band to this bar to play because he wanted to come back and see me and he wanted to share me with his friends. He was going to bring Klansmen and Klanswomen. And so I would call him every six weeks, you know, whenever the band was back there. I'd call him a couple of days in advance and let him know. And he would show up with our Klansmen and Klanswomen. And on the break, I would make my way to his table to say hello. Some of the Klan people that he brought would, would, would hang there and, uh, and greet me. And they were curious about me. But others would see me coming and they stand up and walk across the room somewhere else. In other words, all they wanted to do was look at me. You know, they didn't want to talk to me. They didn't want to touch me or shake my hand or nothing. So that was fine. And this went on until the end of that year when I quit the band and I went back to playing rock and roll and other forms of music. And so it dawned on me 
you know, a long while later, you know, several years later, Daryl, the answer to your question that's been plaguing you since um, 1968, when you were 10 years old, how can you hate me? We don't even know me. It fell right into your lap. You didn't even realize it. It was sort of like serendipity. Uh, I, I then realized, you know, who better to ask? Because nobody could answer that question for me. Oh, that's just the way it is. Well, who better to ask that question of than someone who would go so far as to join an organization that has over a hundred year history of practicing hating people who do not look like them and who do not believe as they believe. I should get back in contact with that Klansman and get him to set me up with the Klan leader in the area and sit that guy down for an interview and then go up north, go down south, go to the Midwest and West and interview various Klan leaders and members and write a book because no book at that point had been written by a black author on the Ku Klux Klan from the perspective of sitting down face to face uh, interviewing these people. So I decided to do that. And that's where that journey started. Daryl's interest in identifying the roots of racism and white supremacy led him to take what is a now famously documented next step, seeking out and meeting with Roger Kelly, the Grand Dragon of the KKK in Maryland. I had to dig around for that guy's phone number. You know, it'd been a long time since I had last communicated with him. I'd never, you know, bothered to stay in touch after I quit the band. And, you know, I mean, you know, why would I stay in, t- in contact with a Klansman? You know, that was just not in, in, my, in, my, uh, in my sphere. So I dug around, I found the number, and I called it. It had been disconnected. So now I had to track the guy down. Turns out he had moved and he didn't have a phone, but I was able to get an address on him. So I had no means of contacting him before my showing up at his door. So I just showed up, you know, unannounced and I knocked on, on the door to his apartment and lo and behold, he opens the door. There he is. He's like, Daryl, what are you doing here? And he stepped out into the hallway and looked up and down the hallway, I guess trying to see if I brought somebody with me or something. Well, when he stepped out into the hallway, I stepped into his apartment. So now he turns around and comes back into his apartment. He goes, hey, man, you know, what's going on? Are you still playing music? What's going on? I said, yeah, 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 I'm still playing. But listen, I need to talk to you about the Klan. He says, the Klan? I said, yeah, you remember, right? He goes, well, I was, you know, I quit the Klan, you know. So he told me this long dissertation as to why he quit the Klan. And uh, that's a funny story in itself, but I'll tell you that in, in a moment. Um so he said that uh, you know, he, he, he said that he had quit the Klan because it didn't have the Christian values that he, that he thought it did. But I learned, I learned later there was more to the story than that. So anyway, I said, well, where's all your Klan stuff? He says, my Klan stuff? You mean my Robin Hood? I said, yeah. He says, well, they came and got it. I said, how do you mean they came and got it? You know, don't you own your Robin Hood? He says, well, you know, if you pay for it up front, when you join, pay for it in full, yes, you own it. You can keep it for as long as you want. Uh, but if you can't afford it, you can still take it home, but you've got to put in extra money every time you pay the dues until it's paid off. Well, apparently, uh, he had not paid it off yet. So they came and took it back. Then he goes on to tell me that uh, when they came to collect it, he could not find the mask that attaches to the hood that hides his face. And he has since found it because it's part of the uniform 
and he had to return it. I said, well, let me see it. So he went down the hall, I guess, to his bedroom or somewhere, but he returned with this mask and he hands it to me. And so I'm looking at it and I asked him, I said, listen, do you know Roger Kelly? Now, Roger Kelly at the time was the Grand Dragon of the state of Maryland uh, chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, let me, let me give you the hierarchy of how the, the rankings go. The, if you have a, um, a chapter of your particular clan group in your state and in another state or in multiple states, you can then consider yourself to be a national clan organization. As a national clan organization, you must have a national leader, like we call our national leader the president, right, who oversees all the states. Well, this, with the clan national leader, he is known as the imperial wizard. Anybody who is prefixed with the term imperial means national, and wizard will be the top position. So imperial wizard be like a president. An imperial caliph would be like a vice president. And then, you, of course, you have secretary and treasurer and different offices. And then uh, below the wizard would be a state leader, what we would call a governor. Uh, uh, in clan terminology, the governor is known as the grand dragon. Anybody who is prefixed with the word grand means that individual is on the state level, state officer. A dragon being the top state officer. A grand caliph would be like a lieutenant governor. And of course, you have state secretary, treasurer, etc. Be, uh, below the state level, you have counties. And a county leader, what you and I might call a county manager or county executive, that individual is known as the great titan. Anybody on the great level is, is on the county level. Within the county, you have districts, uh, what they call claverns. And a district leader, what you and I would call a mayor, a councilman, an alderman, that individual is known as the exalted cyclops. And then, and then below the cyclops is just regular plain, plain clansmen with no offices, no titles, clansmen and clanswomen. So Roger Kelly at the time was the grand dragon for the state of Maryland. And he, he says, yeah, I know Roger. You know, Roger was my grand dragon. And I said, well, listen, I need you to hook me up with uh, Mr. Kelly. I'm writing a book on the Klan and I want to interview him. And he says, oh, Daryl, I can't do that, man. I said, why not? He says, man, we'll both get in trouble if I take a black man to, to the Grand Dragon. I said, wait a minute. You just told me you know, that you're no longer in the Klan. He goes, it doesn't matter. You know, we both would be in trouble. So he, he didn't want to do it. So I'm, I'm holding this mask in my hand that he handed to, sh to show me. And I said, listen, you said that you need to return this mask. He says, yeah. I said, well, give me Roger Kelly's address and phone number. And I will go to his house and I will return it for you. He snatched that thing right out of my hand. Like, boom, like that. He goes, no way. I mean, he was dead serious that he was totally fearful, you know, if, if, if he were to link me up with this guy. So I begged and pleaded for, with him for about a good 20 minutes. And he finally agreed to give me Mr. Kelly's uh, phone number and his home address, provided I did not tell Mr. Kelly where I got it. I said, okay. So he wrote it down for me. And then he warned me. He said, Daryl, do not go to Roger Kelly's house. He will kill you. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's the whole reason I need to see this guy. I need to understand why would he kill me? Why would he be so, so violent and vehemently against me? 
You know, that's the whole purpose of my wanting to interview somebody like that. What came next is a testament to Daryl's perseverance and what I could only call an ethic, a deep commitment to pursuing knowledge and doing so through civil discourse. In a moment like ours right now of deep polarization and political divisions, divisions deeply rooted in not only policy disagreements, but it seems fundamentally about our values. I, like so many others, am finding it incredibly hard to talk to people across the divide. On social media platforms, people unfriend those who voted one way or are members of the opposite party. But Daryl took the opposite path, not only engaging with those who actively espoused and embodied white supremacy, but actively pursuing dialogue with them. Here's Daryl talking about that pursuit. So he says, listen, if you know, if you really want to see Roger Kelly, don't go to his house. He says there's a bar up in Thurmont, Maryland. Now, everybody in this country does not think of Thurmont, Maryland uh, as, as the home of the Klan for Maryland. It's one of the homes of the Klan. They don't know that. Well, most people associate Thurmont, Maryland with the home of Camp David, the presidential retreat. Thurmont is a little tiny town within Frederick County. And yes, the, Camp David is right there, right down the, right down the road from the Klan headquarters. So anyway... Uh, Thurmont is an all-white town, and when black people move there, somehow mysteriously, a cross gets burned in their yard, and they move out. Or if a gay couple moves there, or some, or an interracial couple, whatever, uh, they have a cross burning. A cross burning is meant as a threat. We know who you are, cease and desist, you know, or next time we come back, we mean business. So now, that is not to say that every white person in Thurmont is in the Klan, because they're not. Most white people up there detest the Klan and want the Klan out of there. But at the time, that happened to be where they were headquartered. So uh, one of the groups. So anyway, he, he, he draws me this, this map to this bar. He says it's a Klan bar. Not meaning that the Klan owns it, but that's where they hang out. He says that they're there every Saturday night unless they're out of town at a rally. And he says when you first walk in, there'll be a row of booths off to the left. And the first two booths closest to the door are reserved for the Klan. He says, I don't guarantee you that Roger Kelly will even talk to you, but you're safer to approach him, you know, in a, in a public setting than go on his property, which I agreed. And so he drew me a map to this place. And um, I decided, well, I can't go on a Saturday night because as a musician, I'm playing somewhere. But I figured Sunday is still part of the weekend. Maybe I might catch him there on a Sunday. So I called my secretary and I asked her if I had any Sundays off. And she found me a couple. And I said, okay, I'm going to go try to find Roger Kelly. And she says, well, I want to go with you. I'm thinking, no, <laughs> I'm not taking you with me. And so she, she's very insistent. Now, the reason why I didn't want to take her with me is because she's white. Not that I cared, but I knew that a black man walking into a Klan bar with a white woman, you know, you, you're going to find the Klan. They're going to find you. So... I tried to talk her out of it, but she was very insistent. So I said, okay, you can come, but you're coming at your own risk. So we drive up there one Sunday after, uh, evening, about 7.30. It's a good hour and a half from me. And uh, my guy gave me perfect directions. I followed them, and there the place was. So we're on the, on the right across the street from it, sitting in my car, trying to figure out, now how does a black man walk into a Klan bar with a white woman? You know, there were no instructions in any of my clan books. And so I said to her, I said, listen, 
Let's get out. I'm going to walk in first. You walk in right behind me. If, if you see me turn around and face you, start running, and I'll be behind you. She says, okay. So we get out, lock the car. It's about four or five steps into this little place. I, you know, She's right behind me. I walk in, and um, there's like hardly anybody in the room. There's a big Confederate flag on the back wall. To my right, there's this long wooden bar. Behind the bar is a, is a big mirror, and somebody has scotch-taped to the mirror a picture of Roger Kelly and you know that came out of the Washington Post uh, newspaper, which is our local big paper here. Uh, somebody had, had cut out an article on him and, and taped it to the mirror. I recognized it instantly because I had that same article. I was collecting all that kind of stuff. So I knew I was in the right place or the wrong place, depending upon how you want to look at it. Off to my, off to my left were those rows of booths that this guy had told me about. And there was nobody sitting in the first two booths or any of the other booths. So now she and I are standing in the middle of this bar, basically looking stupid and out of place. And, you know, there were maybe six or seven people in there total, hardly anybody. And I didn't, you know, I didn't see Roger Kelly. I knew what he looked like. I never met him, but I've seen him on TV. I've seen pictures of him in the paper. So I'm looking around. I don't see him. But a couple guys in the back playing pool, a couple guys sitting at the bar, you know, and I don't know if they're in the clan or they're just regular, you know, customers. But I didn't want to walk up to somebody and say, hey, excuse me, are you in the clan? You know, that probably would not work so well. So I said to Mary, I said, you know, I figured I drove an hour and a half to get up here. I don't want to leave empty handed. So I said to her, I said, come on, let's go over here and sit in one of these first two booths, sit in one of the clan booths. Because if there if there's any clan in here, they'll come over to us to get us out of the booth. And then we can ask about Roger Kelly. So she said, okay. So we go and we sit down in the booth. Nobody bothered us. And we stayed there for a little while. And then we migrated over to the bar. I chatted with the guy sitting next to me like I was lost, looking for the highway. And um, he was nice, gave me directions. And we left. So I did not accomplish what I set out to do that a Sunday evening. Determined to meet with Kelly, Daryl faced a predicament. Roger Kelly was a white supremacist and would be unlikely to agree to a meeting with Daryl if he knew that Daryl was black. Moreover, Daryl had been warned that Kelly could become dangerous if he felt himself provoked and could easily read Daryl's wish for a meeting as a potential setup or cause for alarm, putting Daryl in grave danger. To arrange a meeting would require some complicated strategy. Monday morning, Mary works out of my house. She comes to work. I give her Roger Kelly's phone number. And I tell her to call the guy, you know, later in the day and uh, ask him, would he consent to sitting down with your boss and being interviewed about the Klan that your boss is writing a book? Now, why did I not call him myself? I'm the one who had Roger Kelly's phone number. I did not want to call him myself because I figured if he picked up in my voice that I'm black, he would just say, I'm not talking to you, and click, hang up the phone, and my project would have ended before it ever got started. But I knew if Mary called him, he would know by her voice that she's white. And he would not automatically assume that this white lady on the other end of the phone is working for a black man, especially a black man who uh, who's writing a book on the Klan, because, you know, they don't exist. And so that might increase my chances of him saying yes. And then, of course, 
when when he sees me, he can decide right then and there if he wants to talk to me or or reject me or what. So I told her, do not tell Roger Kelly that I'm black. Don't even allude to it. But if he asks you, don't lie to him, but don't give him reason to ask. And, and another reason why I did not want him to know was uh, if if he knew that I was black and he agreed to meet with me, in the interim, he might have time to prepare different answers that he would give a black interviewer than he would give to a white interviewer. So I wanted spontaneity. So she understood. She called him. She got a hold of him. And he didn't ask what color I was. And he agreed to do the interview. So skipping ahead, we set it up for a Sunday afternoon. I, I remember this at 5.15 in the motel above the Silver Dollar Lounge. And um, Mary and I got there several hours early. And the reason why we did that is because uh, from what I know about the Klan, before they bring one of their leaders somewhere, they send out scouts to check it out, make sure everything is cool. You know, So I, I, I figured I don't want to get there and be checking in and then uh, some scout hanging out in the lobby of the hotel, uh, you know, where to get back to Roger Kelly that I'm black or something. And so uh, we got there several hours early and uh, got the room. I sent Mary down the hall to get soda pop out of the machine and put it in the ice bucket, fill it with ice, get it all cold. Because I wanted to be hospitable when Mr. Kelly arrived. I did not know what he was going to do. Would he come in my room after seeing me and do the interview? Um, if he did, I wanted to be able to offer him a cold beverage. So we got it all, all squared away. And the room, if you were standing in the, in the doorway, in the hallway by the door, looking into the room, you cannot see who's in the room. Right when you look in, you see the bathroom to your left, and there's like a wall there. You have to come in the room and go around the wall, and then there's the room. So I took the lamp table, I took the lamp off, and I put the table over in the most obscure corner of the room, and I put a chair on one side for Mr. Kelly and a chair on the other side for me. And I had a black canvas bag beside my chair, which contained uh, a cassette recorder, which I set in the middle of the table, all in hopes that Mr. Kelly, if he came in, would agree that I could record. And I had some blank cassettes in my bag, and I had a copy of the Bible, because the KKK claims that the Bible, you know, they're, they're a Christian organization, so they say. They claim that the Bible preaches racial separation. Now, in my reading of the Bible, I've never seen that in there. So I want to be able to, you know, reach down, pull out my Bible and hand it to Mr. Kelly and say, hey, please show me chapter and verse where it says blacks and whites must be separate. So I'm all prepared, right? Right on time, 515, knock, knock, knock on the door. I'm seated at the table. Mary hops up and runs around the corner and opens the door. In walks what is known as the Grand Nighthawk. Nighthawk means bodyguard security. Grand, of course, state. So Grand Nighthawk would be the bodyguard for the Grand Dragon, like an Imperial Nighthawk would be the bodyguard for an Imperial Wizard. In walks this Grand Nighthawk. He's dressed in military camouflage fatigues, and he has that clan patch on one side of his chest, that red circle, white cross thing. Over on the other side were the initials KKK, and embroidered on his cap, it said Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And he had a semi- automatic handgun in a holster on his on his hip. Well, he comes in and Mr. Kelly is walking directly behind him in a dark blue suit and tie, and he's carrying a briefcase. 
Well, the Nighthawk turned the corner and saw me and just dead froze in his tracks. And Mr. Kelly was walking close behind him and had not seen me yet because he hadn't turned the corner yet. So Mr. Kelly turned the corner and didn't realize that his Nighthawk had stopped. And so Mr. Kelly slammed into the guy's back and knocked him forward. And now they both are stumbling around trying to regain their balance. And they're like looking all over the room. Like, uh-uh, something's not right here. And I'm just sitting at the table looking at them. And I could read their faces like a highway billboard sign. Their faces were saying, oh my goodness, you know, did, did we get the wrong room number from, from the desk clerk? Or is this an ambush or what? You know, there's a lot of apprehension going on there. So I saw all this and I stood up and I displayed my palms to show I had nothing in my hands. And I walked forward and I put my right hand out. I said, hi, Mr. Kelly, I'm Daryl Davis. And he shook my hand. And the Nighthawk shook my hand. So, so far, so good. This is working. I said, please, gentlemen, come on in, please. They came in. I said, have a seat, please. Mr. Kelly sat down and the Nighthawk stood to his right. And before I could sit down, Mr. Kelly asked me if I had uh, identification. I said, sure. And I pulled out my wallet and I handed him my driver's license. And he looked at it. And he says, oh, you live on such and such street in Silver Spring. Now I'm a little concerned. Why is the man looking at my address? You know, I'm standing right there. All he has to do is look at my face. Is it the same face that's in the picture on the license? And I said, Daryl Davis, is that my name on the license? You know, he doesn't need to be looking at my address. So I'm thinking, uh uh-oh, you know, is this guy going to come to my house and burn a cross or, you know, what's going to go on here? I did not want to let him know that he had unnerved me a little bit. But I want to let him know, you know, in no uncertain terms, you know, was he to violate my privacy or come to my house and do something stupid. So I said to him, I said, yes, Mr. Kelly, that is where I live. And you live at... And I named his house number and his street. That way I was leveling the playing field. I know where you live. You know where I live. We're going to confine all this visiting to uh, this motel room. Now, I didn't say that, but that's what I was implying by reciting his address. He smiled and nodded his head like he understood what I was implying. And I did not realize it that day, but until a few months later, one of his members lived right down the road from me. I didn't know that. Mr. Kelly would have to travel down my street, which goes through my neighborhood, the next neighborhood, and the next neighborhood to, to get to this guy's house. So he recognized the street name, that's all. It was pure coincidence. But there's no way I could have known that that particular day. So I've been presumptuous. Well, anyway, that same clan member is in a federal prison for hate crime now. And uh, so Mr. Kelly and I got on with this uh, interview. And every time he would um, say, you know, Mr. Davis, the Bible says blah, 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 I'd reach down into my bag and pull up the Bible to hand it to him. Or if my uh, cassette was running out of tape, I'd reach down to pull out a fresh tape and put it in. Every time I'd reach down, the Nighthawk would reach up and put his hand on on the butt of his gun. And... I understood what he was doing because he was doing his job. His job is to protect his boss. And he doesn't know me. He doesn't know what's in my bag. So he's not taking any chances. So I got that. And, uh, you know, I I, I didn't mind that so much. Uh, And after a while, he relaxed. 
I went in and out of the bag and the bodyguard didn't move. Just over an hour or so into this interview, Mr. Kelly and I just talk, you know, we're, we're sitting like two feet across from each other. This, this is like a little lamp table, you know? And uh, we're, to- we, you know, we're just talking casually. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there was a very quick, short noise, like a, that was it. And it happened so fast and it was so short that my ear could not discern what it was. But I knew that whatever it was, Mr. Kelly had caused it. And how did I know that? Because I did not do it. So, you know, if you don't do something, you blame somebody else. And so I'm blaming him for making this noise. And because I could not figure out what the noise was, I perceived it to be an ominous noise, a threatening noise, because I'm ignorant. You know, ignorance breeds fear. You fear those things you don't understand. I did not understand the noise, so I became fearful of it. And I went immediately into survival mode because already I'm on high alert. You know, I, I'm my, my radar is out. I, I'm meeting with this guy who's my enemy. He is the head of the Ku Klux Klan. I'm a black guy. I've already been told by one of his former members, don't fool with him, he'll kill you. So my mind is racing to think, what did I just say? What did I just do to cause Mr. Kelly to make some weird noise, right? And in that split second, I was out of my chair and I hit the table because I'm getting ready to come across that table and grab Mr. Kelly and grab the Nighthawk. And I was going to slam them down to the ground and disarm the Nighthawk because I did not have a weapon. Uh, Mary did not have a weapon. The only people, or the only person who I knew had a weapon was the Nighthawk. You could see it on his hip. I did not know if Mr. Kelly had a weapon up under his uh, suit jacket or not. All, all I knew is I didn't want to get shot that day. So when you, I, I had gone into what uh, is called survival mode. When you fear for your life, you go into survival mode. And when you're in survival mode, you generally can only do about one of four things. Some people pass out, they faint. Because the fear is so great, the brain cannot process it and it shuts down. Other people, their muscles tighten up and they start shaking and vibrating and they can't move. They're paralyzed. And that is called paralysis by fear. I don't do that either. The third thing people will do is to run away. You know, when you get scared, you run away. And that is a good choice. In fact, that is your best option. As quickly as you can, separate yourself from the source of the fear. Leave that area. Get away from it. You know, Uh, that is a choice that I would have taken if it had been available, but there's no outrunning a bullet in a motel room, right? So that was not an option. The last choice you have is to do a preemptive strike. Get them before they get you. And that's what I was on my way to do. I was going to dive across the table. Well, when I came up and hit the table, I'm looking right into Mr. Kelly's eyes. I'm telling you, I was only like inches away from his face. And my eyes were like looking right into his eyes. And I could read his eyes. I mean, that's how hypersensitive I was. His eyes were saying to me, what did you just do? And my eyes were saying to him, what did you just do? And the bodyguard was looking back and forth between both of us. And his eyes were saying, what did either one of y'all just do? Well, Mary was sitting to my left on top of the dresser because there were no more seats, chairs. And she realized what had happened. 
and she began explaining it to us. When it happened again, the ice in the ice bucket next to her had begun melting, and the cans of soda were shifting down the ice. That was it. And, you know, when you think about it, somebody almost or could have gotten shot over an ice cube. That's how crazy it is, right? Ignorance breeds fear. I'll let Daryl have the last words. All right, so you saw the chain unravel uh, almost to completion, all right? Ignorance breeds fear. If you don't address that fear, that fear will escalate to hatred because you hate the things that frighten you. If you don't address that hatred, that hatred will, will escalate to destruction. We stopped just short of destruction. Fortunately, because Mary had discovered, you know, what the source of the noise, all right? Um, but in that, mo- you know, and, and when she explained it and, and we heard it again, we all began laughing. But that humanized all of us in that room. Two things. One, a noise came out of nowhere and we all felt fear and trepidation, all of us. And then when the noise was explained, we all felt you know, relief, and we all began laughing. So we all had that in common as human beings. Human beings fear, human beings can find humor, you know, when the fear is dispelled. So this was a, a learning moment. Um, it was, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, it wasn't a learning moment. It was a teaching moment. The learning would come later, but it was definitely a teaching moment. And the lesson taught is all because some foreign entity the foreign entity being the bucket of ice, Kansas soda, because we'd long forgotten about it, had entered into our little comfort zone via the noise that it made, we became fearful of each other because we were ignorant as to what it was. So ignorance breeds fear, fear breeds hatred, hatred breeds destruction. And, and as I said, it stopped short of that last component, fortunately. However, three years ago, you saw that chain unravel to full completion in Charlottesville, Virginia at the white supremacist rally, right? On August 17th, 2012, I'm sorry, August 12th, 2017. There was a lot of fear in Charlottesville that day. There was a lot of ignorance in Charlottesville that day. There was a lot of hatred in Charlottesville that day. And what did it culminate in? It culminated in destruction when a white supremacist got inside his vehicle and and drove as quickly as he could, full speed, into the crowd of, of counter-protesters, attempting to murder as many as he could. And he succeeded in injuring just over 20 and murdering one young lady named Heather Heyer. So, you know, there's a lesson taught there. Ignorance breeds fear, fear breeds hatred, hatred breeds destruction. But now here's the issue. We spend too much time in this country addressing the symptoms, the byproducts, the destruction. We, you know, we want to talk about, about what got destroyed, you know, and all the hate that was there and all the fear. Those are byproducts. Those are symptoms. Don't waste your time with those things. Go to the source, the nucleus of what's causing all these byproducts. All right. Nobody addresses the ignorance. They all want to address all those other things. The ignorance is the nucleus. 
if you cure the ignorance, then there's nothing to fear because we only fear that of which we're ignorant. If there's nothing to fear, then there's nothing to hate. If there's nothing to hate, there's nothing to destroy. The good thing is this, the ignorance can be cured and it can be cured through education and exposure. And that's where we need to focus our efforts, our energy and our resources. And that's it for this week's episode. Join us for the second episode of the series next week, where we continue with Daryl and we hear more about the way that he is using the strategy of civil discourse to change minds. Okay, all you got to do is just uh, go on Facebook and express an opinion. And I'll guarantee you somebody out there will disagree with you. And thus the argument starts. Do you find that that's a productive way of finding people to disagree with and, and a productive place to have that happen? Well, it's productive if that's your goal, to find people to, to disagree with. Sure. <laughs> there, there'll be a million within an hour, I'll guarantee you. <laughs>